0: Hello, this is another episode of the UNISOF question, and I have a really interesting guest today. Uh, I would say that uh, to me, this person is a woman of mystery a little bit, and we will uh, see why in a second. Suzanne Kyoto. She is a Western University professor. She's a professor of law. She's a lawyer. She practiced law before academia, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Suzanne to the show. Hello, Suzanne.
1: Hi, Pilat. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really good uh, to have you as well. And the reason I said that um, I see you a little bit as a woman of mystery is because your Twitter bio, I think, uh, referred to you as an Anglo Canadian. Yes. I don't correct. know if it still does. I haven't checked lately. It still does. Okay. I changed so it for a while. <laughs> to me, uh, I guess maybe it's a Canadian thing, but to me, Anglo is the opposite of Franco in Canada, right? So you, you have Anglos yeah. and you have Francophones, but you are using, of course, that term uh, in a different sense. You're an mm-hmm. actual English person. Yes. From an actual, yes. from, the, from actual England. From actual England,
1: yes. From, from no, I'm the not, mothership. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say I'm not a Francophone, even though I'm <laughs> not. Um, no, it, that's actually, I'm English and Canadian. That's what I meant.
0: Right. That's, that's amazing. So you, uh, I call England the mothership. <laughs> because um, the legal tradition, of course, our legal tradition came from England, uh, except mm-hmm. for Quebec, which also enriched the Canadian legal tradition a lot. And that legal tradition came from Europe, from France. But I'm really curious about where you came from. Uh, I, I must admit, I've never been to England. So where in England uh, were you born and grew <laughs> up? Okay, okay. So this is
1: what makes me laugh. When, when people ask me where I'm from, I I don't really know how to answer them, like define from so I wasn't born in England and I'll get into that in a second. Uh, I wasn't born in England um, and I have passports from more than one country. So when when people say, oh, where did you grow up? Then I say England, but I wasn't born there. And then they say, well, where's your passport from? As if that's a defining question. I say, well, I have two passports, one from England and one from Canada. So I was actually born in New Jersey of all places, the United States. My dad worked in Manhattan. And, um, and so we left there when I was two. So I don't consider myself American at all. And, uh, and then people say, oh, well, then you moved to England when you were two. Well, no, then I lived in Italy uh, and I was bilingual in Italian and English. I learned them both at the same time. And so we lived in Milan until I was about seven. And then I moved to England. So I, I consider myself English, or I used to consider myself English. I guess I still do more than I consider myself Canadian, but I never really felt that English either. So it's, I'm sort of a mongrel in terms of heritage, although my parents are English and, you know, I can probably trace my roots back to various places in the South of England, several generations but I never when I was a child growing up in England I started out with an American accent never made fun of me and I deliberately lost my accent <laughs> and and then I get to the age of 25 and I move to Canada and everyone loves my British accent and some people make fun of me but then I just think no I've already lost one accent because people made fun of me I'm going to keep my British accent I don't care and I'm not trying to make myself look sort of underdogish or anything I'm not I'm uh pretty privileged as uh, immigrants go but and but uh, you know i'm a canadian now i'm not an immigrant anymore but it's just it's interesting when you come from lots of different places and people can't peg you they don't sometimes they don't like that so uh i prefer to be a woman of mystery <laughs> let's let's go with that identity i like that one
0: yeah a woman of mystery for sure and the second part of this mystery is your italian last name where is that coming from
1: Right, so it's nothing to do with the fact that I lived there. uh, When I was young, it's uh, I married an Italian Canadian who was doing his PhD in England. Uh, So he was doing his PhD in England and I met him there. And then about a year after we got married, we moved here. So uh, he calls himself Italian, but I make fun of him because he's never actually lived in Italy and he's never been bilingual in Italian. So I, I now, now I'm the one who makes fun, but um, I, I technically know Italian better than he does. And I've lived there. So I call him a plastic Italian. And uh, I consider myself the actual Italian, which is really weird that it look Italian at all.
0: You're the embodiment of a, of a modern cosmopolitan person, <laughs> citizen of the world. Yeah, citizen of nowhere. <laughs> a citizen of nowhere, <laughs> probably. Uh, what did your dad do in Manhattan when you were born?
1: He worked for Chase Manhattan Bank. I don't know where in Manhattan. I do think it was the World Trade Center, but mm-hmm. um, it was still okay. standing then, which marks me out as relatively old these days, so.
0: Was he a lawyer?
1: No, no, I'm a first-generation lawyer. I didn't, I didn't even think of that as a thing, honestly, until people started talking about it as a thing. I, I'm the first and only person in my family uh, to be a lawyer. He's, um, what does he do? It was sort of software engineering. I never really knew as a kid. He he did lots of software networking things. He's an IT guy. So
0: The amazing thing about you is that you did your undergrad uh, in Oxford, correct? Mm-hmm. Did your parents steer you in your education and career uh, path at all or... Was it more of a general influence, and you blazed your own path?
1: Mm. Uh, the answer to both questions is no. Uh, so, how do I? It's it's strange to talk about your parents on a public podcast because, you know, it's it's people have complicated relationships with their parents. But um, I, I was always encouraged to do well at school, but my brother was always smarter than me, so he. I would say he was the one who got encouraged more and I competed with him. So I sort of blazed my own path that way. And when I say my brother, I mean my twin brother. Uh, so we we're both at the same in the same grade in school. So we, I have a twin brother. He's brilliant. He's, he's a numbers guy. He's an actuary and I'm the words person. So he did very well at school and I did very well at school, but I was always slightly behind him. And so I did well at school because I was competing with him all the time to try and keep up. Uh, And so, I was never encouraged to go to Oxford, never even crossed my mind. Uh, What happened was, uh, gosh, it's really weird to talk about myself and know that people can just watch it wherever, but um, when I was well, so when I was 12, my parents divorced, and then when I was 14, my mother passed away. So after that, we were raised by my aunt and my aunt is a superhero she is an absolute superhero and if she hadn't stepped in I wouldn't be where I am today and she's the one who encouraged me to go to Oxford so it it never even crossed my mind I never thought I was clever enough I you know if, if you'd asked me where I should go I would have named a perfectly respectable university in England but not Oxford and she said no you should go I think you can get in and she encouraged me and she helped me and I got in so uh she's basically my hero Amazing Heroine, story.
0: Whatever. Yes. Yeah,
1: thanks. Yeah. Uh, it's, and when I talk about it, people get funny and awkward and things, but it's just, it's just part of my No,
0: life. I'm just always funny. So <laughs> <laughs> this is just my, my face. Um, not only did you do your BA at, uh, in Oxford, you did your mm-hmm. MA in Oxford, and then you returned to Oxford 17 years after your graduation. And you did your PhD in law in Oxford. That's accurate, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So, well, it's actually
1: called a DPhil because Oxford has to be different from everywhere else. But it's essentially a PhD. It's
0: yes. called a DPhil
1: though, Doctor of Philosophy. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, right. So when I searched you on Google, uh, I uh, <laughs> I found your Oxford page, and there was something there that caught my attention they uh, refer to you in a really interesting way. Uh, let me just look it up. So it's right here. So there is an Oxford um, law webpage for you. You are mm-hmm. uh, a uh, stipendary lecturer. I, I was, hope, yes. I, yeah. I hope I pronounced that right. That's right, yeah. And um, uh, in the very last paragraph of that page, as a side note, I guess, they say, this is Suzanne's second time at Oxford, having received her BA in modern history as a member of St Hilda's College, where she was an exhibitioner. No, oh. so not an
1: exhibitionist. No. Okay, explain.
0: <laughs> I don't know that term. Okay, so
1: uh, oh wow, this is going back to sort of Oxford tradition. So uh, in Oxford, you have, I think the the sort of Everyone is a reader, every undergraduate is a reader. I think that's right, I'm not really sure. No, they're a commoner. Gosh, it's so stratified. Um, so the undergraduates who are just, you know, normal undergraduates are called commoners. This is gonna sound so foreign to Canadian ears. Uh, and then if you get a, uh, if you do very well in your first year exams, which are called moderations or mods, if you do very well, then you get a scholarship. That's for people who've got a first, which is the very top grade in your mods. So uh, then you're a scholar. Uh, If you almost got a scholarship, but um, didn't quite, then you're an exhibitioner. You get an exhibition, which is like a, it's like a scholarship, but not quite as good. So I am an exhibitioner or I was an exhibitioner at Oxford. And that means you get to wear a cool gown. So not only is it stratified by sort of title, I guess, except nobody goes by those titles, but, Anyway, um, it's also stratified by dress Um, and people have campaigned against this uh, for various reasons in Oxford over the decades. But essentially, a commoner's gown is a short, almost like a waistcoat black gown with sort of weird tapered bits on the side that used to be sleeves. But now are just it's sort of like the symbolic thing that you get on the back of your lawyer's gown. And then scholars and exhibitioners can wear the full, you know, black gown with a puffy sleeve that you see at graduation ceremonies and things. So then you go to your next exams and you're wearing the big scholars' gown and you sort of feel a bit more confident because you're already cut above the rest of it. It's very, very stratified. Um, And some people say that it sort of encourages, I don't know, discrimination or bias or something like that. I mean, I don't really know. I just, I wore the gown because I was allowed to, and it was cool.
0: <laughs> so. When you were reading Harry Potter years later, did you have any flashbacks?
1: I've never really, I've never read a full Harry Potter book.
0: Conf- oh, wow. That's another interesting, interesting thing about you.
1: <laughs> but I have been to the Harry Potter world at Warner Brothers studios in London, which is amazing. Highly recommend. Their butter beer is delicious. Um, but what makes me laugh about Harry Potter is that so much of it, oh gosh, I'm going to sound so weird and posh in English now, but so much of it is part of how I grew up or part of my experience. So all the North Americans are watching, watching it going, oh my God, Harry Potter, they're both—they're all sitting there at a bench eating their dinner and they all wear these gowns. And look, he comes from this pokey little house in the middle of nowhere. Like, grew up in a pokey little house in the middle of nowhere and then I went to a college where I wore a big fluffy gown and sat at a bench eating dirt you know that all that is part of my experience so it wasn't in a very very cool looking castle I have to admit uh, but and I didn't learn any magic spells um, more the pity I should uh, ask for a refund of my tuition but it's just so it's just so funny that so many parts of Harry Potter and I'm sure they're part of J.K. Rowling's experience which for people she knows which is why she sort of lumped them in uh, and another part of the Harry Potter um, sort of genre is the boarding school. You know, the they all have their trunks and they put them on a train and they go to school and they stay at school and they have these feasts with all their friends and and those were part of all the boarding school stories that I read growing up. And I'm pretty sure they're not part of the general reading material for kids now. But you know, when I when I see Harry Potter, I recognize all those all those tropes. I guess, um, yeah. So,
0: wow! I have to go I to know. England.
1: I know. I, so, I just—it sounds so weird talking about myself like this because Canada is so different. But I feel like I'm part of Canada as well. So,
0: oh, I, we'll, get very, we'll get to Canada very—we'll get to Canada very soon. In fact, mm-hmm. my next question is: How do you go from exhibitioner in Oxford to uh, JD at Western University? Mm. So, explain that 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 eight-year path.
1: Well, that was quite circuitous, really, because. Um, now let's see. So I finished my. This is going back into the into the archives. So I finished my uh, undergraduate at Oxford, and then uh, there's really not much you can do with a history degree uh, except become a historian. So I um, decided to do an additional qualification as a journalist. So I did a diploma as a journalist, and then I worked at various places. It's hard to get a full time job as a journalist, uh, even back then. So, I worked at various places, and um, and and you know, I mostly freelanced to be honest. I was really a freelancer, I did some internships, uh, bounced around a bit in England, and then we moved to Canada, where I tried to be a journalist as well. Um, with a relative degree of success, I was still freelancing, but I had a regular gig at the Hamilton Spectator and things like that. So, um and at the same time, I mean, I don't know, people look at me in my pearl earrings and, and my 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 professor job and, and my English accent and think that, um, you know, I'm sort of sitting on a nice, you know, fluffy cushion in my nice little house and, you know, but it, it's just, I've had so many experiences uh, of different parts of life. I, I've always been, I, I think I've always had um, people looking out for me, so I've never been, you know, underprivileged or at risk or anything but when I first came to Canada I as well as my journalism I worked in an at um, at-risk youth shelter in Hamilton uh, which is about as grungy as it gets I think at least in the south southeastern southwestern Ontario and um, and you know so I worked in the breakfast program and I cleaned up the food bank and I scraped the mice off the floor and I cleaned the toilets and you know I did all of that stuff as a volunteer I did get paid eventually because I wanted something to do and their the journalism work really wasn't filling all my time so you know I've and I, I talked to people who've been through horrendous experiences and so I've I've seen I've seen the sort of less um, I guess attractive side of Canadian life as well um, people who've really yeah I, I mean I was amazed by them I, I worked in the breakfast program and it was always such a, a great start to the day because you have these youth coming in and you know they might have had a bad weekend or a bad day before but in the morning they're they always come to the breakfast program and say okay today is going to be good today is the day I'm going to look for a job or do this or do whatever um sort myself out and it was always really positive and upbeat and I really enjoyed talking to them so I think that was a good that was a good sort of grounding in Canadian life because uh you know I I didn't want to just come here and and find a job and just be sort of insulated from all that so I mean I might have if I'd gone straight into a full-time journalism job I might not have chosen to do that anyway so I'm not going to be disingenuous about it but you know I thought it was a really good start to to my time in Canada actually.
0: You've had a circuitous path as you said and mm-hmm. after uh, your GED. Oh but I didn't
1: sorry I didn't finish the story. But
0: I- <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no go ahead. You asked me a question. So
1: uh, and so I was doing that and the journalism uh until until I applied to law school actually and um and so because I thought well I can't do this for the rest of my life I I suppose I could have done but it wasn't I wasn't really making any money and I wasn't really going anywhere so I thought well I have to find some way of retraining in Canada then and so I thought well I could do anything and so I uh what did I do oh I t- I took a practice LSAT. So I thought well you know if I do well at that then maybe I'm supposed to do this and I did really well on my first try and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll take the real LSAT then. So I took the real LSAT and I did really well. So I thought, okay, then I'll just apply to law school and see how I do. And then I got into law school and the rest is history. So it was kind of almost accidental. Not almost, but yeah. Kind of you, know,
0: you know who doesn't like talking about LSAT scores? Our- Everyone. <laughs> our common friend on Twitter, Andrew Bernstein, I think he has an allergy to uh, LSAT's core discussions.
1: So. <laughs> probably because he did terribly. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just, he's got a sense of humor. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm
0: sure that he Who cares was probably like an in intimate. In in, 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 yeah. yeah, exactly. And he probably yeah. was in the 99th percentile or something. Yeah, that's but, right. <laughs> so, the interesting thing to me is that you had a circuitous path. And I totally understand circuitous paths. I've, you know, of all people, I definitely had a circuitous path. And uh, you practiced law for quite a few years. After law school, uh, you uh, clerked at at the Federal Court of Canada. That's uh, quite an exceptional honor and opportunity. You uh, practiced law in insurance defense and class actions. Uh, and uh, I think you worked at uh, Roshan Genova. I don't know mm-hmm. if I, I'm pronouncing that uh, law firm's name correctly. That's correct, yeah. Roshan Genova, which, by the way, was um, uh, featured... So I saw the
1: CIBC decision.
0: Yes, in the CIBC decision, yeah. which um, uh, we discussed in uh, one of the uh, uh, previous episodes on the show with Barry. Uh, Unfortunately, so- I
1: did not work on that case. So. <laughs> I
0: don't know.
1: That,
0: yeah that was a really interesting decision uh by uh, justice myers who also mm-hmm. a, was a guest of the show of course mm-hmm. so the to me the interesting thing is that your circuitous path seems to be over now and it's very really straightforward path and i think you're set on the academic career at this point is this a fair view or you still have some surprises up your sleeve
1: I think I, uh, I, I think it's a fair assessment, but I wouldn't say there are no surprises up my sleeve. I mean, life always throws things, right? I mean, who would have expected? Uh, where are we? February the fourth. Who would who would have expected two years ago that we'd be in still not even in the middle of a pandemic? Nobody even in February twenty twenty thought it was going to get as bad as it did uh, the COVID pandemic. So there's life always throws surprises. Um, know i didn't think i'd have an eight month old son by now two years ago yeah there's always there's always things um there's always surprises but yes i i would say uh, since since i stepped foot into western law school in september 2008 wow i would say my circuitous am i even pronouncing that right route was over. I, I mean, as soon as I started law school, I knew that that's where I wanted to stay. I wanted to stay in the law. And In fact, for my first week, pretty much, I knew I wanted to be a professor. Um, so, although that's taken a, a bit of a winding road, you know, I practiced intentionally. I practiced for a few years because I, I, I wanted to get, um, I wanted to get that practical experience. And then, you know, I sort of went back and forth to England and did my um, PhD, DPhil, whatever. But throughout all that I've had where I am now in my mind. So I would say, um, yes, this is, this is where I'm at. Does that make sense?
0: What is an academic?
1: <sighs> wow. Um, do you mean what do they do all day or who are they as people or what is their role in society? that's that's quite a general all three of those things i don't know all
0: three of those things whatever you think is the most important defining quality of academics why do we need them if i were to be more Uh, that's a
1: very good question
0: yeah if i were to be cruder in my question i would ask you why why do we why the heck do we need academics Mm -hmm.
1: um from my own perspective and people will disagree with this and that's fine my view is that Legal academics, at least, and I can't speak for other uh, areas of academia. Legal academics are there to—I hmm, don't want this to come across the wrong way—do the thinking that lawyers don't have the time to do. So lawyers are—you know—most lawyers I know are um, flying by the seat of their pants, and quite frankly, we all are. But they don't—they're ha- not paid to sit down and think. They're paid to uh, move cases along, uh, appear in court. Discuss with their clients. Um, you know, they'll they use precedents for uh, for pleadings and things like that, um, factums, because they don't have. You, you can't you can't really bill for sitting there thinking about well, what, you know, what what is the the real meaning of you know unjust enrichment or you know why why do, why is it you know uh, acceptable here but not here. Or that kind of thing. They they don't have the time to think about that kind of thing. And they don't have the time to sort of go to Canley and look up all the cases and say, well, you know, this is the number of cases in which which pain and suffering damages were awarded, but, you know, there was in this amount, but not this amount. And, you know, what can we get from this empirical analysis? They don't have time to do all that, right? But that information is useful to them. Uh, And I've talked to lots of practicing lawyers who say, I would really love to know. For example, the impact on the courts, the impact on uh, times to get to contested motions or trials uh, as a result of COVID or the, the rising delays or whatever in, in uh, trials or other hearings, that kind of thing. So they would love to know all that, but they don't have the time to look at all that because they're just busy Surviving every day and pursuing their practices, and, and that's their job, that's what they're supposed to do. And I think then the clients would be too impressed if the lawyer came back and said, Well, I don't have an answer to your question, but I do know why. I don't know. Um, we call it, we call one thing battery and one thing assault and tort or something like that. You know, the, the client would be like, So what? But that information is, it can, it can be important to lawyers, right? So that's, that's what legal academics are for. Uh, we're here to do the thinking for you and that sounds kind of patronizing because lawyers think too but we can sort of go more in depth and address issues that probably bother lawyers but they don't really have the time to address them fully and and some people are going to disagree with that some people are going to say uh, we're not here to really serve the legal profession at all we're here to um, you know educate future lawyers and give them a good doctrinal grounding and then they can do, go do whatever they want to do. If they wanna sweep the street or they wanna become a Supreme Court justice or whatever, that's fine, but we're here to impart knowledge and that's it and, and do research and various doctrinal things. I know people who think like that and that's fine, but I don't think like that. I think we're here to sort of be the, the brains of the legal profession.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if academics are the brains of the legal profession,
1: and don't quote that out of context. Lawyers have brains too. They think a lot too. Okay. Just I didn't even I think. That that,
0: to... Yeah, I didn't even think about that interpretation of of your right, theory okay. that if academics are the brains, then lawyers themselves are brainless. <laughs> are the brawn, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the yeah. brawn, exactly, yeah. or the yeah. mouth, um, <laughs> for litigators, right? <laughs> yeah. So if academics think for lawyers, or at least think through some deep fundamental issues that lawyers don't have the time to think or where, where it's not the lawyer's role to think about them. If academics do that for lawyers and how do lawyers consume academics work product? And mm. you know, in, 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 in our, our society, we judge everyone by, by their output. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the economic output, for example, if someone is extremely kind and charitable, that's their output, right? If someone is extremely productive and entrepreneurial, then their output will be measured in money. One way for me to judge academics output legal academics output is to see the articles cited by the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's one measure of what academics do. And it's only a litigator's view because I'm obsessed with written decisions uh, of, of judges. And uh, are there other ways to consume, for lawyers to consume your product or for uh, the society at large to measure your product and to measure what uh, legal academics do?
1: Mm. Uh, and that's another really important question. I mean, I think I think the days of, of valuing and, uh, you know, a lot of academics do value academic research in its own right as good and they don't have to, they don't feel like they should have to justify themselves to anyone in terms of sort of the value of their work product or anything like that but and you know i'm not i'm not judging either either point of view but i i, I do think law school fees are very expensive uh, they pay for not just the teaching, but also the research that the academics put out, and so the graduates of those law schools should be able to use the work product of those academics. I think, and society at large, uh, because universities are there to also serve the community, should be able to use that output as well. So I think that's that's a really good point. And I think uh, the way I put out my work product uh, in articles, and I try to make my articles. Um, open access, relevant, um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how else I can really sort of promulgate my articles that much. I mean, I'll put them on SSRN and things like that, but um, they're not really the kind of thing that, I, or I put links on social media, that kind of thing. So it's, that's sort of as far as I go in terms of promulgating my uh, written work product. But I also do things like uh, I do a lot of stuff with the OBA. So I do um, uh, the class actions colloquium and things like that. I'm on the class actions executive. So that helps sort of disseminate my my research and my thinking to the wider profession. Um, And I do want to work more on uh, disseminating my research to the wider community as well. So um, and I'm really only starting to get into this side of things, but I think um, the Class Action Clinic at Windsor is a really good example of that, where they they sort of take the, the research that the professors and the students do and then help class members um, to uh, pursue their rights and to make claims. I, I think that's amazing. So that kind of thing where you sort of use, use the deeper thinking that you've acquired and then help, use it to help the community through uh, clinics and experiential learning. And it also helps the students that's really good as well. So, I think that's where uh, I could, academics can really add value.
0: So, I want to use one of our other f- uh, Twitter friends uh, as an example. Uh, I'm talking about Paul Eric Veil of Lens. Okay. And Dash? Uh, Dash, or actually, I think his last name uh, should be pronounced Vail okay. in Estonian. Yeah, but you know. Well, we can get into that in, the, in a separate linguistic uh, episode of my show. Uh, you know about his Supreme Court leave project, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So is this, uh, so he is, uh, of course, um, uh, and, and his colleague at Lenzner's uh, have this project where they built a model that predicts the uh, probability of success of applications for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada. Isn't, isn't this something that um, academics should do? Isn't, isn't this yeah. a little bit uh, contradictory to your theory that lawyers don't have time to think about issues like that and academics uh, are there to do it? And But here we have a law firm basically uh, taking time away from billable hours to yeah. think about deep issues and actually build applications. So take the next step uh, um, past theory and build applications on top of theory.
1: Mm, I think that's incredible. I I do think it's the exception, though. I mean, when I first saw that, I just thought, wow, go Lensner. That's that's really great that they've they've sort of created the space to be able to do that. Um, I think a lot of law firms uh, either don't have the resources or the willingness to do that. So um, and that's mostly what I was thinking of when I said that academics can uh, sort of fill fill that gap and 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 do some of that deeper thinking. but yeah, I mean I, I, I think there are a few lawyers who are um, who would make very good academics and they just have chosen not to go down that path and Dash is one of them, so uh, I think that's his whole leave model is is really great and yeah, I, I think academics should do more of that kind of thing. I mean, like I said, it's it, it's very expensive to go to law school and and law schools, I think, should serve the communities in which they're placed. And so we really can't sort of, I'm going to get stones thrown at me for saying this, but ourselves and say, no, I'm just doing research for its own sake. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting that we now know, um, you know, this, the origins of this doctrine—that's no one ever, no one has ever used for ages, et cetera, et cetera. Like you have to be able to, and I'm not saying that kind of research is completely irrelevant, because you you can you can apply it to modern day um, things that are going on, but you have to be able to somehow tie in what you're doing to uh, to what the community is wrestling with right now, or some aspect of the community is wrestling with right now, because where. And I, I, I kind of feel like we're at a turning point in our, in our world, in our society, and we need, to, we need to all sort of pull together and do the important work of figuring out questions and, and, and con- contributing rather than sort of sitting in our ivory towers and working on our little pet projects that maybe one person is going to read.
0: That's, that's really what I think. What do you think about the prevalence or lack of prevalence of statistical and mathematical methods in legal academia, should we have more of that? Uh, Isn't this the time of of big data? Isn't this the time where we have the tools now to analyze big data and draw inferences or conclusions from big data? Shouldn't legal academia academia pay more attention to data? Is it really data-oriented enough?
1: I don't think data is the be-all and end-all. I mean, I, I think, I think you can have um, purely doctrinal analysis. You can have um, more sort of qualitative thinking. You could have more sort of evaluative uh, writing. I think I think that's all fine. I do think that big data is useful, and we should be using more. We we should be we should be using it more. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. It, I mean. This is a growing trend in academia where you get these sort of labs when they're, they're, they're getting these data points together and analyzing them and things like that. So um, there's a lot of that at uh, McGill, for example. I think Queens has one as well. So it is growing, but you're right. We, we do need to use that kind of thing more. I think one of the big, one of the big um, draw, not drawbacks, barriers to that is the lack of data collection in our court system. It's really hard to find, for example, how long it takes a case to go from statement of claim to to final judgment, if it does go to final judgment, or what percentage of um, statements of claim that are that are uh, commenced are do go to final judgment, or you know what happens to them, why, and things like that, or what percentage of legal disputes don't even reach the claim stage. You know, it, it's it's really hard to get all that kind of data, so it's hard to analyze it. We're reading. Really Things like Canley, which is amazing, but uh, it has its limits in terms of what information it can provide. So I think we need to work more on the data collection. And our, and our court service needs to work more on the data collection. And sort of, you know, if I wanted to find out, I had someone come to me recently and say, "Oh, you know, I want to find out what uh, what percentage of um, claims in Canada have sought this kind of damages, and where have they been awarded, and stuff like that." You know. Where should I go for that? And you know, really, there's to get kind of detailed information, you have to go and get the claims through Frank. And even Frank is not is not a very good as the Law Commission of Ontario found when it was doing the class actions project. Frank is not a very thorough or consistent collect, uh, way of collecting information or data. So we really need to work on. And I think I think the uh, Courts Administration um, Service is sort of working on. Uh, better data collection and better sort of um, end-to-end management of, of things like that. But we really need to work more on getting the data and then we can work on the big data because big data is just lots of data, but it's only the, it's only as good as the data you collect. And so if the data you collect is crap, then probably the results you get, you get aren't gonna be ideal. So um, that was a very long-winded answer, sorry.
0: No, that was a great answer. You know, I'm going to have Doug Downey Uh, The Attorney General of Ontario on the show. Great. Fairly soon. So I think these are good points for for him, uh, making data available. So we we thought that making data available was for lawyers, but it turns out it's also for legal academics because Mm -hmm. legal academics are constrained in what they can do because they lack data. And perhaps we will spur uh the uh, the mathematical methods the statistical methods and the applications of these methods and all kinds of findings if we just make data available for our legal academics is it fair to say that your main academic interest is in class actions
1: i think that's fair yeah um i mean i'm also interested in um I'm, all, I'm also interested in the way that claims are pursued through the courts and the sort of access to justice implications of that, and who yeah, the, the the sort of rising cost and um, delay in in getting claims heard. So I'm interested in sort of the administration of justice as well. But yes, class actions are my main interest.
0: What about civil procedure in general? You you taught it right for a few years.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I teach CivPro all the time. Um, that's that's another of my main things. So I, I, I love civil procedure as well. So I, I would say the administration of justice and civil procedure are very closely intertwined. Um, so,
0: yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to, uh, let's say to our viewers who are not litigators and also even for litigators, explain how someone can love civil procedure because I also love civil procedure, but I don't think that many people understand that.
1: I think, can I take a sip of tea before I answer that question? Because it's gonna be a long one.
0: Okay, great. Of course.
1: <laughs> so history was my undergrad and history suffers from the same problem that civil procedure does. Everyone thinks that history is about memorizing dates when history is much richer and thicker and more interesting than dates. Everyone thinks that, uh, civil procedure is about the rules. And yes, it is about the rules. But it's not just you know, um, uh, it, it's not just about you know Rule Forty Nine uh, offers to settle or whatever that kind of thing. It's it's much, much much more interesting than that. And so, the rules of civil procedure, I would say, sit within a wider web of dispute resolution in our society. So you have to really sort of draw back, not just pick at the minutiae of the rules, but actually draw back and see where do, where do the rules sit in our society and where you know what role do they play in the wider web of dispute resolution uh what you know is is pursuing a uh, a dispute through uh through the courts the only solution or what other solutions are there and how do the rules sort of work with those other solutions or respond to those other solutions that kind of thing and so if you just say oh you know it saying history about the dates is, is about the dates makes history boring right and it is boring if it's just about the dates but if you look at why people acted the way they did and how their actions affected other actions and how that sort of uh, worked within the wider sort of cultural and social context of what was going on at that time it's way more interesting and it's the same with the rules if you just look at you know rule 49 office to settle or you know rule um uh rule 21 or Rule 20 or whatever um it's going to be much less interesting than you say well than if you say well why do we have motions to strike and what role do they play in the uh, in the sort of dispute resolution context? you know what interest is there in a court answering a question sooner rather than later or determining whether a claim should be pursued sooner rather than later? you know what wider uh, systemic issues does that address? And then you can look at things like access to justice and uh, the cost of disputes, who has access to, Um, the dispute resolution system? Why do some disputes go towards arbitration or mediation or whatever, rather than through the courts? If they do go through the courts, what equity questions are there? You know, do some people get their disputes resolved sooner and why? Do some people get, get their disputes resolved more in their favor and why? And you can ask those kinds of really sort of societal questions in the context of the rules but you're not just memorizing the rules because memorizing the rules is boring people. And this is the great thing about civil procedure, teaching civil procedure. In all my student evaluations, not all of them, but in a lot of them, the students sort of say, I was expecting it to be so boring. And it's great as a teacher. Nobody comes to civil procedure with high expectations. And they're always happy when they leave because they're like, I thought it was gonna be so boring. And it's actually really interesting. So I always get great evaluations (laughs) because people have such low expectations. Anyway, so I can't remember your question, but it was something about how civil procedure is great. So I hope I answered it.
0: Exactly. And uh, you answered my question very well. Uh, Is your interest in class actions then from a procedural standpoint or from a substantive standpoint? Or is it a mix of both? It's a mix of both.
1: I I had this argument with my supervisor for my uh, PhD so many times where he insisted that class actions do not affect the substantive law. And all the jurisprudence in Ontario and Canada say class actions do not affect the substantive law. I think that's wrong, I'm sorry. Like, I, I think there's, there's concrete examples you can point to where class actions have changed the substantive law. One example is, um, and so that, that's why my interest is in both, because I think you can't look at procedure without looking at the substantive law that it's supposed to be facilitating. You know, procedure is the handmaiden of justice or whatever that saying is. And so uh, things like the need to prove loss across the class. That's, it, the courts kind of skirted over that in Canada, but in terms of, so for example, you have a competition class action where you have direct purchasers, indirect purchasers, direct purchases being the ones who directly bought the product that whose price was fixed, for example, and then indirect purchases being the ones that bought from the direct pur- purchasers. And then you have umbrella purchasers, which didn't buy a price fixed product at all, but the price was affected by the price fix and conspiracy. And so you have all these people who are affected by uh, different different sort of classes of people that are affected by a problem, you know, a, a wrong in competition law. And then, and then in uh, at certification, for example, the court says, um, "Yeah, we'll we'll certify the question of aggregate damages." Now, to certify the question of aggregate damages, that means that you're assuming that the question of loss can be answered on a class-wide basis, and you know, the the actual sort of question of loss in terms of did everyone suffer loss. So it's part of the liability question. It's not quantifying damages or anything, but did everyone suffer loss? And if the question is if the answer is yes then you can go on and sort of have these sort of methodological ways of assessing aggregate damages but by saying by by certifying the question of aggregate damages then you're basically saying you can prove loss across the class now how can you prove loss across the class when you have different people who have had the loss arguably passed down the chain from direct to indirect to umbrella you can it, it's really hard to quantify that um, and so this sort of skirted over and says, yeah, like aggregate damages, the judge, can, the judge at trial can can sort that out. But it's almost like by doing that, they sort of overlooked the need to the courts have overlooked the need to prove loss uh, on a class wide basis, um, even when there's a question of whether each class member has suffered loss and that affects the substantive law. So that's that's a, that's one of the areas where I would say class actions have affected Um, the substantive law in England they've actually directly addressed that in the legislation so if you look at the competition class action regime there there's actually provisions that say you don't need to prove loss across the class the end done you know the legislature's deal dealt with it but nothing explicitly addresses that in Canada so you've had class actions kind of sneak in the back door and sort of slightly warp the substantive law and nobody has sort of stuck up their hand and said well actually, so I, that's, that's one of the things that I'm working on. And I think it's really interesting the way class actions do in some cases slightly warp the substantive law. Nobody really wants to address that or say that because then, then class actions aren't that harmless anymore. Then they're doing something else that we haven't really thought about. And nobody, nobody wants to sort of say that. I guess I'm saying that. So.
0: So, what you're saying is, for example, the Consumer Protection Act may not explicitly refer to class actions, but class class action procedure will affect consumer protection in Ontario because stakeholders and actors will take class action procedure into account when they make decisions under the Consumer Protection Act. And that's the uh, roundabout way of the class action procedure affecting the substantive consumer protection law, even though there is no reference Mm -hmm. from the consumer protection act to class actions. Is this this a little bit uh, accurate or not at all?
1: But that's a slightly different question because then you're saying that the creation of the law or at least the creation of Different statutory um, requirements are affected by the the lawmakers' perception of how class actions work. I I mean, I would say I would say that's different from class actions affecting the way that the existing substantive law already works or is interpreted by the courts. Um, but I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I'm saying that's a slightly different thing from what I was talking about just now. Um,
0: right. Yeah, when I said stakeholders, I meant, let's say, I meant um, um, service providers under the Consumer Protection Act, like corporations or companies. Mm -hmm. So in my view, they keep the Class Proceedings Act in mind when Mm -hmm. they make decisions under the Consumer Protection Act, even though the Consumer Protection Act doesn't refer to class actions at all, but they know how class actions work. So that way, procedure, which Class Proceedings Act is pure procedure, right? That way, procedure affects decisions under substantive law, even if class actions are never brought in those particular cases.
1: I mean, I think procedure affects decisions under substantive law in lots of areas. I don't think that's the same as procedure changing the substantive law. Do you see what I mean? I mean, so yes. we're talking about the behavior modification aspect of class actions there. So right. if I'm if I'm shell or something, then I'm going to be a lot more careful about polluting, I don't know, Lake Ontario. Uh, because if I do, then I could get a class action brought against me by all the people living on the shore of Lake Ontario who've had their their homes or beachfronts, or whatever, polluted, right? So that's that is that's sort of working in the shadow of a class action because you're you're sort of thinking about a class action before it's even been brought. Um, and and corporations do that all the time. They do sort of damage limitation and things like that all the time. I don't think that's the same as class actions changing substantive law. When I talk about class actions changing substantive law, I'm talking about courts looking at a provision that's really... so. For example, um, so I think courts look at a class action and say, uh, "I don't know if this is something that goes on in judges' minds." Or the, it's because to deny certification is often to deny the class action altogether, and so there's sort of a a desire to make the class action work, even if it maybe doesn't work from a substantive law perspective. Like I said, the for example the um, termination of loss across the class, because otherwise you're going to have a lot of people with, you know, $20 losses or whatever, who aren't going to pursue that case on their own. And so it's almost like the wrongdoer gets away with it because the, the, the case doesn't fit within the mold of a class action. And so I think, I don't know whether it's consciously or subconsciously or whatever, some cases have tried to sort of Bend the substantive law to fit into a class action or vice versa so that justice can be done rather than, um, rather than sort of, well, you know, technically this can't be pursued by over class action because of X and then denying justice altogether. Um, and there's an argument for doing that, right? There's an argument right. for letting everyone be able to pursue their losses, even if it means bending the substantive law slightly. But I think we should acknowledge that that's what we're doing in some cases.
0: Now it makes sense. So basically judges change the the substantive law through their interpretation of the substantive law to ensure that uh, procedural outcomes are just.
1: Some judges can, yes, I'm qualifying it. (laughs) I'm a lawyer, remember, so Yes. um, yes. I, I would say that happens we, we can
0: ask judges when they come to the show, we can ask what goes through their minds. Uh, in situations, uh, judges like that. are
1: pretty cagey about that, they <laughs> just sort of kind of say, Oh, refer to my decision. I, I wrote okay. it there.
0: <laughs> so, you know what? I think a lot of people will really learn from this short discussion. I, I it really opened my eyes, uh, what you just said about, um, the interplay between class actions procedure and the substantive law. This is really interesting. I know quite a few people who will uh, uh, listen with great interest. Suzanne, uh, we're dangerously close to the uh, allotted time mark. I am very sorry to uh, have to do this, but um, I must say goodbye. It ha- has been absolute pleasure. I want to thank you so much for for sharing your views and your perspective with us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks, Pulat. Thanks for uh, having me on.